healing is possible. We share stories of people everywhere who have healed from their diagnoses. Powered by HealthRevolution.org I'm your host, Dr. Anup Kumar. Please note, this episode mentions topics including self-harm and suicide that some people might find triggering. Hello and welcome to the Healing is Possible podcast. My guest today is Kimberly Mays. Kimberly Mays, MSW, is an author, educator, speaker, and change agent. She created the Trauma Response Syndrome Model, a trauma-specific treatment modality that provides an alternative to the medical diagnostic model. For two decades, Kimberly has utilized insights gained during her recovery from dissociative identity disorder, which she calls trauma response syndrome, research from trauma experts around the globe, and teachings from wisdom keepers from all backgrounds to create this life-saving model. Kimberly recognizes the importance of informed consent, avoiding misdiagnoses, and empowerment as foundational rights. Kimberly, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So Kimberly, please share with us your story of healing. Well, sure. Um, I could make a very long story as short as I possibly can. Um, I like millions, I would say, uh, was a misdiagnosed person uh, impacted by trauma in the mental health system. Uh, I first entered the system at 13 years old. And when I say entered the system, I mean, I was hospitalized in a psychiatric unit uh, after my first suicide attempt. Um, I don't remember that. I've, I've been told by people that that's what happened. I've completely blocked that out. My second attempt was at 17. I was also, also hospitalized at that time. And then as I became an adult, it, I just became part of the revolving door of uh, over-medicating polypharm, you know, hospitalizations. Uh, I had about 25 mental health diagnoses, different diagnoses um, during my time in the mental health system. I was taking probably 11 or 12 psychiatric medications at one time. I was basically, I mean, medicated. Every emotion I ever had, I felt like was medicated. Um, this is looking back at it. At the time, I had no understanding of what was going on. I believed everything I was told as far as bipolar disorder, psychosis, you know, all of these different diagnoses that I had. Um, I was very med compliant. I took all these medications. I was, uh, now looking back again, I'm not sure, you know, what was going on because when you're taking that many medications, you have so many side effects as well. So, um, I think that there is a, a lot of different things going on. Um, I, I honestly thought that I would die, um, probably as a result of my, my own doing in the mental health system. I was hospitalized so many times and nothing ever changed or got any better or anything, nothing was ever different despite all of the medications. Then I became, you know, treatment resistant. Then I was, you know, all these rapid cycling and then they were gonna, I don't know what intervention it was, but I'm very grateful. I was about one day from getting ECTs um, which I now would not have been very comfortable with, uh, my mother, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, stepped in and said, no, I don't want her to have those. She never advocated for me at any other time, but she did that day. And I, I'm grateful for that. Um, just for my own personal life, uh, other people feel differently about them, but I'm, I'm glad I did not get ECTs. Um, to clarify and then, for the audience by ECGs, you mean the electrical treatments. Exactly. Yeah. Um, electric therapy. Um, I, because I, I had become treatment resistant, meaning I still had all of these symptoms, despite being all on all their medications that they said would fix my, my problems. And they, they didn't because the diagnoses weren't actually the issue. 
Um, I can say that now. I didn't know that then. Um, I did not really know much of anything then because I was actually so severely dissociative that I didn't really know what was going on from day to day, hour to hour sometimes. So, um, you know, it, it, it was a, a big issue. Um, I went to two years of graduate school um, in social work that I'm not exaggerating. I remember probably a total of three days of hmm. that two years. I was extremely dissociative and fragmented and um, acting out of that trauma um, in extremely dangerous ways. I'm not sure how I made it um, through, through that time. But um, I uh, had been hospitalized over the course of about 10 years in the same psychiatric hospital with the same psychiatrist. And um, so he knew me quite well. He, um, in the, over that decade, surprisingly in 2003, um, he had started taking trainings about trauma from Dr. Colin Ross, who's the creator of the trauma model and has at that time had an inpatient trauma unit in Texas, Dallas, Texas. Um, I don't believe that's there anymore, but Dr. Dr. Ross still writes and things like that. So uh, my psychiatrist actually started training with him and began understanding trauma and became trauma informed essentially. Um, and uh, which was not common in 2003, nobody was talking about trauma. I mean, I'd been on psychiatric units many, many, many times and nobody had mentioned the word trauma. So uh, for him to take that upon himself and for me to, to know him in a, in a little hospital in the middle of, of Iowa is pretty phenomenal because it wasn't on one of the East or West coasts where trauma-informed treatment is more prevalent. Mm -hmm. So um, I had been hospitalized in 2003 after um, I had done something extremely dangerous and um, you know, my daughter was, of course, a victim of my trauma. You know, I, I just have to say, you know, she had a really difficult childhood because of, of my trauma and the experiences that she had as a result. Um, that's a different story. But the point being is that she found me in the bathroom um, unconscious. I think she was about seventh grade at that time. And I had self-harmed as well. So I had, had cuts on my arms. Um, and so I, uh, I mean, I blocked most of it. I don't really know what happened. I think I walked out. I started walking down the street. The police knew me very well by then because I was quite defiant and did all, all kinds of very dangerous things and illegal things um, as a, a fragmented, traumatized person. That's what people do. Um, and they took me to the hospital. And honestly, um, I thought that was the end of it. I thought this is the end of the road. I'm not doing this anymore. I don't understand why I keep doing these things. How do I keep ending up here? I, I don't get it. And, um, you know, I, I was, you know, becoming very hopeless, which is the most dangerous thing that can happen to someone is losing their hope. Um, you know, as many of us say, if we didn't have a child or a pet or something, we wouldn't be alive. And, and certainly that was my case. I didn't want to put more trauma on my daughter. Um, somehow I thought my, my suicide would cause more damage than what she was already getting. And so I was sitting at the hot at the hospital um, table in the in the hospital, and my psychiatrist came over and just said to me, "You're not mentally ill. You're not bipolar. You've been traumatized. Similar to the uh, cuts on your arms have been your traumatic events, and I believe that you have dissociative identity disorder." Uh, which that's a very, um, 
for me at that time, it was a very scary diagnosis. But at the same time, I felt like finally this is something different. Um, and he started to explain to me what that meant and, you know, like I said, he knew me for very, a very long time and many years. And he actually was saying, I should have known because you'd come to the office dressed in all these different outfits. Half the time, I didn't recognize who you were. And of course, I didn't remember any of that. Um, I was, you know, people have, you know, helping professionals have their different beliefs about that diagnosis. Um, from my perspective, it is, it is the only thing that made sense at that time for me. It's the only diagnosis that I ever received that actually fit my symptoms, um, especially due to the severity of my, my, my dissociation, which nobody had ever mentioned that word to me before, but I lost days at a time, weeks, years at a time. I had no idea what was going on half the time. And so um, I believe it, for me, it was correct. Although I don't, now, 20 years later, I have created a model that, that wants to go away or gives an alternative to these diagnoses. Um, but for me, that, that was the only diagnosis that I uh, could agree with that I've had. I do believe it was an accurate diagnosis, although I think there's um, less uh, pathologizing ways of, of describing those symptoms and um, not having a, 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 you know, disorder or, you know, pathologizing of human behavior, which is my, my personal pur purpose. Um, and so after that, um, I mean, it took many, many years before I was able to function. So it wasn't like I got this diagnosis and then everything was fine by far. No. I mean, I, I still probably for three years, I was still extremely fragmented and, um, I went to an inpatient trauma unit for 30 days, um, in Kansas city, which actually provided DID treatment, a dissociative disorder treatment, um, out of all the hospitalizations and places I had went, I didn't re receive any real treatment, but but there I did. Um, of course, it doesn't exist anymore because all the funding has been cut. But it was, um, anyway, that's a whole different story about uh, people who are going inpatient and what needs that meets and those kinds of things. But um, the point being, it, it took many, many years of a very intense trauma treatment before I was able to even function. And of and I was on social security disability. Um, I got it almost immediately after I applied for it. And so I had, you know, opportunities that other people don't have because I, I didn't have to worry about income as much. So um, I worked with a trauma therapist who also trained under Dr. Colin Ross and um, specialized in, treated, in treating dissociative identity disorder and dissociative disorder or um, disorders. Um, and so the, the way that she worked with that diagnosis, um, I think probably saved my life, uh, which is how I work with that um, diagnoses or, uh, that kind of, um, fragmentation or dissociation. Um, there's controversial ways that people work with that diagnosis that I personally believe in an integrative approach or else I wouldn't be here. I know that that doesn't feel safe for everyone. Um, but I'm very grateful that that was how she approached, uh, the the diagnoses rather than 
some of the other ways that, uh, that other people treat it. So um, after a while, um, I, became, I, I began to understand myself. I began to understand what motivated me and my behaviors and um, why I continue to um, act out. When I say act out, I mean acting from trauma. It's not a derogatory um, statement. I think we need to normalize all of these trauma responses, attention seeking, acting out. All of those things are, are normal, understandable reactions to behaviors considering our experiences. We don't need to, to you know, say negative things about people who are trying to get their needs met and the only way they know how. And that's part of the advocacy work that I do is to uh, advocate to change this language and how people impacted by trauma are referred to and seen um, in, their, in their behaviors. So uh, I, uh, you know, began to, to, to get better. Um, I was still very, very dissociative for a very long time and, and actually went, went to work as a clinical social worker later. I went back and, and started to try to work as a social worker and I was very, very dissociative, but evidently people couldn't tell because I was very good at my job. Um, but that's, you know, kind of this, this uh, apparent competency or high performing people who have some of these, um, these things going on is that they, they do do very well in some ways. But of course I was still kind of falling apart the rest of the time. But I, I, I got better and better and better. And um, that psychiatrist who had diagnosed me with bipolar and later DID um, actually apologized to me for diagnosing wow. me with uh, bipolar, bipolar disorder because he said, you know, wow. he just didn't know any better. He said, uh, he said, I should have known, but I wasn't confident enough in myself to be able to say what I knew. And so you, you know, lived for you know, 10 years in the, in the system or whatever. And I said, I probably wouldn't have been able to hear it at that time. I had to have been at a, at a certain point where I was able to receive what he was saying as well. Um, because it meant really, you know, looking at the reality of a childhood and, and a family system and, um, things that were excruciatingly painful. So, um, but I, I was grateful for him for saying that, you know, and that, that trauma therapist um, ended up being uh, one of my, my perpetrators actually, but that's another story. Um, but uh, which is another reason why I, the way that I do things, I do it all intentionally. I do it all on purpose. It's not because I'm trying to, you know, I, I left the mental health system and, and chose to no longer work as a licensed therapist because I, I don't believe in the governing bodies for me. This is because I'm trying to make a point. I'm not saying no one should be licensed or anything like that. For me, I'm trying to provide an option for people who would never go into the mental health system ever. They would not see me if I was licensed. And that matters. Everyone's needs, everyone deserves a seat at the table from my perspective. It doesn't make me any less ethical or, I mean, I still had all the same training as everyone else, but from my own personal experience as someone who was very traumatized by my licensed therapist and she was licensed in three states, it made her no less ethical, no more ethical <laughs> to have these licenses people, we need a way to, um, you know, the, the self-help kind of coaching um, way of doing things also needs a way for clients to, to make 
uh, reports and things like that. But but the license in itself does not make people ethical. You, you have to do a lot more digging into what is this person saying? What what you know? People who are are on this you know getting work you know getting uh, who are clients need to feel empowered enough to ask personal questions like, have you done your own work? Because I don't want you traumatizing me <laughs> because you're not resolved, which is what happened to me. I mean, I, I was very traumatized by my therapist and um, she, she did very unethical things and I didn't, I wasn't empowered enough to do anything. And, um, you know, people who work in the, in the mental health system also need to be empowered. They need to be able to have choices and how they see the people they work with. They need to have options and whether or not they have to, you know, follow this diagnostic way of, of seeing things, um, which I don't support at all, especially with what I know that trauma can cause every symptom just about, I would say, in the DSM-5. And that's saying a lot. If you just get educated and, and learn to understand trauma and, uh, you, you know, you, you don't really need to see people from this medical diagnostic pathologizing way. And that's where I feel I come in is to help people understand behaviors of people impacted by trauma, why people continue to do what they do. Um, which is where uh, my specialty is from my perspective, where I, I add to the knowledge base, if that makes sense. Wow. First of all, thank you so much for sharing your story. Absolutely, sure. Um, you know, not only have you gone through that or going through your own process, but you're speaking up in a way um, that I'm sure makes many people feel heard and feel seen. I hope so. Yeah. So as a physician in the ER, I see how much we need these more complete perspectives mm -hmm. to really fill out the picture on what's really going on. Oh yes. And not just one way of seeing, as you put it. Um, so I just want to start there. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. You're welcome. Um, and then so many things you touched on. First of all, when you said that the psychiatrist, your psychiatrist who had known you for so long, so many years came to you and said, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I was wrong. Um, you don't have XXX. By the way, you said over 20 diagnoses. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that covered the most popular ones, right? The most yes. common ones. In, mm -hmm in uh, DSM or that we see in the ER, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and for someone to say, I was wrong, you don't have this, this, but uh, this is, this is due to trauma. Yes. I mean, that is, that is just unbelievable, you know, in many ways, right? First of all, that, that <laughs> we can be so wrong, you know, yeah. for so long. So, so I guess radically wrong for so long, um, but then also turn around and, and to be able to say that also is not easy. And no. I yeah. think if, if a lot of people saw things from different perspectives, I'm speaking about we physicians today, if we were able to kind of look at ourselves and say, you know what, maybe I am wrong about this, especially in some of these diagnoses that have really, they're a way of seeing things or, and there are many other ways of seeing things that may be more explanatory and have more power in terms of engaging what's happening, then that could be incredible. So can you just talk about that a little bit about, you know, that, just that, that phrase, I was wrong. I remember you said that it was tough for you at that time. You couldn't exactly receive it at that time, but can you share with us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, you know, I had been diagnosed with four different personality disorders, uh, you know, and as, as well as, you know, all these other, these other, uh, diagnoses and I feel like he, 
saved my life that day. And when he, when he became brave enough to become trauma informed, and I say brave enough, because like I said, this was in 2006 or 2003, before the ACEs score came out, before Bessel van der Kolk's research came out, it started being more published in 2007. So that was before that even. Um, so he, and he got a lot of pushback from the hospital because okay. he was an administrator. Um, you know, he was the, the head of the behavioral health unit and he was going way outlier and, and they were not having it. I know that because I, I you know, talked to him much later and, and, um, years later, cause you know, I kind of became his, his star of recovery because, you know, a lot of people don't get better in that system, yeah. even though they could. And um, I, I, at at the time he did say that to me, I feel like if I wouldn't have heard, if I wouldn't have heard that I don't know what would have happened because I was at the end of my rope. I was like, I'm done doing this. Um, and it's not like he, he said that to me and then I went along my merry way. I mean, my daughter was removed from my care. Um, you know, I, I, he, he, he was like, your daughter's going to come home and find you dead. You need, she can't be in your care anymore. So it wasn't like, you know, he, it's like he knew, he knew the, the severity of what he was saying, yeah. but I think that he believed that with the right treatment, I could get, get better. So he said, you know, you have to do all A, B, C, D to get your daughter back. And I did. And one of those was to go into intensive outpatient with him and and people who who treat dissociative disorders and that therapist and you know people who who knew how to treat trauma and it was like for people who've who've experienced the kind of fragmentation and dissociation that I experienced to then be told this is what you're experiencing because of trauma after you've spent your life in, in the mental health system and, and believing other things. Um, and then to be validated by, you know, a man in a white coat, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And I'm forever grateful for him. Um, he did save my life and he saved my life for being brave enough to get trauma informed. And I do consider it bravery because it's not supported. It's not even, you would think, I still work with people or, or talk to people who are still having the same experiences that I had in the mental health system, regardless of all the trauma-informed treatment and research there is. And I'm just like, what, what? <laughs> You know, you're, you're diagnosing a 16 year old with bipolar and giving her three meds. And this is a long list of trauma she has. I don't think there's excuse for it anymore. Hmm. There, there's too much knowledge and it, it just takes people to be brave, to say, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not watching these kids, these people, anyone go through what, what is obviously not real. I personally, for the majority of people, you know, borderline personality disorder needs to be eliminated. That diagnosis is completely trauma-based. And when you understand trauma, I can explain everything about that diagnosis from a trauma perspective and how to treat it. And it's really not that, you know, difficult to figure out when you understand trauma and trauma motivated behaviors and what needs are getting met all i mean it's not it's difficult but it can be treated and you know i still know people who are going into the system and being told you know we're not going to work with you because you have this diagnosis 
Well, I had that diagnosis and three other personality disorders, you know? So I, I, I think that he was brave. I think that he was brave and, and I, I don't support how he treats DID because he does a lot of personality mapping and all that kind of stuff, which I understand it. Some of that has to happen, but you know, he did the best he could with, with the information that he did have. You know, as you're describing this dissociative, uh, dissociative identity disorder or dissociation, I'm kind of starting to think that even the way we approach this in medicine to say that, you know, somebody has a certain experience and then we qualify it with a diagnosis, whether it's major depressive disorder or dissociative identity disorder or uh, schizophrenia, any number of, of diagnoses, um, especially I'm talking about diagnoses that have to do with our qualitative experience primarily mm -hmm. and, and what right. we call mental health and mental illness that I'm starting to think that when we think about that primarily in biological terms as a, as a neurotransmitter problem, for example, as a brain problem, I think that itself is a kind of dissociation actually on the <laughs> part of professionals, because yeah. it's, it's kind of, if we do it exclusively, you know, right, it's, exclusively, but right. if, if we are primarily focused on biology, because that, that happens to be our training, but if we primarily focus on what is a qualitative experience and convert that into, you know, objective biology, then I think there is a dissociation in that it's, it's hard to be in that environment and to deal with those emotions, right? It's about sure. engaging yeah. in, like, in a way we're all engaging what's happening if, if we're all kind of in this together and trying to help this person. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that just occurred to me as you were speaking that dissociation, even in medicine, you need, I mean, objectivity is a kind of dissociation, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be pathological, but I do think an over-reliance on that kind of biological model is that. So that's something that came to me. The other thing is that you talked about how in your view that every diagnosis in DSM or certainly um, every aspect of what's called borderline personality disorder can be explained from a trauma perspective. And that takes me to the question of what exactly trauma is. I, I know, I know definitions like trauma is, you know, some experience that still sits in the body, still sits in the mind, and is kind of continuing to reverberate and, and influence actions, but there are really no hard boundaries on it. And mm -hmm. I think that may be why it could, when I say it, even the word trauma may, be, may not be the right word, right? What, whatever, some kind of stimulus, let's say, from the past that is unresolved, that is still being perpetuated, may be the underlying factor in all of these diagnoses. Can you speak to that, like the, yes. the boundaries of what qualifies as trauma and the implications? Right. That? Yeah, that's a very good point. Like I said before, I, I, I do things from a very specific way for a specific purpose. I use the word trauma to encapsulate many, many things because I'm trying to normalize the word. I'm trying to normalize the word trauma that it's not these horrifying things that people talk about. It can be, but it can also be much more what I call subtle trauma or, you know, little T trauma, as they, they used to say, or maybe still do, but I call it more subtle things that don't look like they would maybe overtly affect you. So if we look at the trauma response syndrome model, the model that I created, a trauma response is, is can be used interchangeably with a coping skill coping skills or trauma responses, because any response that we have to trauma that helps us survive is a trauma response. So that can be behaviors as well. So, you know, there's certain concepts in the model that explain this so people can understand what I'm talking about, but to make it very simple, it's, you know, we start developing responses to trauma sometimes in the womb because if in my case my mother was a victim of domestic violence there was violence in her you know 
environment all the time. She was anorexic. I didn't get enough food. I didn't get enough nutrients. And I was, you know, the research on, on prenatal trauma is, is becoming much more available as far as what fetuses can experience in the womb when their parents are fighting or they can smell their mother's fear, those kinds of things. My point is a lot of us are born traumatized. Then we start developing trauma responses in response to our environment. So if I wasn't held, which I wasn't, I was very neglected, I start to dissociate. That's a trauma response, a response to my environment. Perhaps I started fragmenting there then because I, I wasn't getting my needs met. And then as we grow up and then our attachment, right? Attachment is, you know, created then. I have disorganized attachment. You know, all these things are responses to trauma that we're trying either a coping skill or we're trying to survive or it's a way that we responded to trauma. So that can be many, 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 many things. It can so, be, you know, the way that we respond to our caregivers. It can yeah. be internalizing blame. It can be, yeah. you know, and, and those trauma responses accumulate over time and develop into emotional, mental, physical distress. That's so, trauma response syndrome. Even something like what you said, um, not being held, which wouldn't even it's not even an act that we commit. It's an, it's an omission, right? So it's even harder right. to right. go back and think about, Oh, what happened? What happened? It, it might even be hard to think about that because it's not necessarily something that happened, but something that didn't happen. So even that can ultimately be something that stays with us and, and influence our behavior and therefore can be classified as trauma. It's interesting because I think, I know there's some controversy now about, you know, how, uh, trauma-informed is getting popular, but some people are saying, well, trauma-informed isn't everything. And I wonder how much of that conversation is really about the word trauma and what qualifies as trauma and how much can we really know? How much can we actually detect, right? Because that's based so much on personal experience and what we've been through, what we can see in the other person and what they might've been through. Well, actually, um, a couple of things I'd like to say, you know, one thing is research has shown that neglect is as damaging, if not more damaging to a child than actual overt abuse. So actually the withholding of mm -hmm. is, is because the child doesn't have an opportunity to try to fix it or be a better child or whatever coping skills that children develop, because of course, it has nothing to do with the behavior of the child, but the child doesn't know that because they're trying to survive. That's one thing I wanted to mention. The other thing is that um, no, well, my little piece of the knowledge base, what I bring in is exclusively trauma. I look at the impact of trauma. On, on adult mental health and behaviors. Other people can go and research neurodivergence and all the other things that might be going on. But for the people that I work with who come to me, their issues are from trauma. And if you understand trauma and trauma responses to the degree, degree that I do, then you can then you can recognize there are very uh, quite a few similarities among people of their trauma responses, regardless of what their experiences was, just because of the way that we learn to survive. And so the symptoms might look different, but the core as to why they're doing what they're doing is, is, is often the same. So it's not like you need to know 20 different things. It's like, once you understand trauma and the needs that people are getting met and, and you know, how trauma motivates behaviors, um, you can understand someone who's sitting in your office having, 
you know, all of these emotional symptoms to me, I'm like, okay, this is just a puzzle to be solved. It's not like, oh, you're borderline and you can't be seen because you have too many emotions or too many symptoms. Well, it's like, look past the symptoms. These are all just trauma responses. Mm -hmm. What is going on behind it? Why are they, you know, why are we attention seeking? Because we're trying to get needs met. What needs are those that we're trying to get met? Well, there's a list of, you know, five or whatever primary needs that motivate behaviors. It's complex and multi-layered, but it's nowhere near impossible to treat people who have complex trauma. It's just not. And you talked about um, the integrative approach to um, dissociative identity disorder. And can you talk a little bit about that, the, how the TRS model approaches this and specifically the integrative approach? What does that mean? Yes, um, absolutely. If this is something that I, I, I will say that if, if, if you meet someone that tells you their approach is all you need to treat trauma, you need to turn around and walk the other way because they don't know what they're doing unless they're trained in, you know, all kinds of different modalities, then they don't know what they're doing. And if they, if, if that is the case, maybe they're spread too thin. Um, because really to truly treat trauma, you have to understand somatics, how trauma is stored in the body. I have, have non-epileptic psychogenetic non-epileptic seizures. And that are, they're basically trauma-based seizures or dissociative seizures that they're actually called dissociative seizures in Europe. Here, they're called psychogenetic non-epileptic seizures. Um, I went to a treatment facility in Boulder, Colorado, which there's only four in the nation. So that was kind of an interesting experience. Um, And so I have to really do work on my body to get that trauma out that's stored there. And you can't do that with talk therapy. You you just can't. Now, what I do is not really talk therapy because it's, it's, it's teaching people uh, why they're doing things, but that's, that's where I add to the knowledge base. You also need to understand the impact of trauma on the brain and the central nervous system. You have to understand the, the impact of, of, trauma on attachment, which is also part of the trauma response syndrome model, but there's lots of other areas, you know, emotion regulation, distress tolerance, all of these things that make trauma really affect all aspects of the self. And I focus and specialize in one area. Got it. I focus and specialize in the area that's missing that's the impact of trauma on behaviors. You know, they have, you know, lots and lots of summits on the impact of, you know, on, on the top trauma training and researchers. And it's like, you're missing behaviors. You're not talking about behaviors. That's what, that's why people don't understand us because they don't understand how trauma motivates behaviors. So, you know, you've got, you know, their, their trauma recovery gets easier and easier but it is a long, probably lifelong endeavor just because we reach different states and levels of healing. I don't want to say, oh, I'm perfectly healed because I'm always searching for better understanding and deeper understanding and different ways of, of mostly releasing trauma from my body now. Mm-hmm. I don't really have issues with fragmentation or dissociation or I am integrated. I am no longer DID. I don't dissociate like that. Um, but I still have trauma in my body. So, you know, an integrative approach just means different, you know, ways of approaching and, and addressing different things that, that people impacted by trauma experience. And you mentioned how it's, it's um, healing rather than heal. Right. It's this, it's this right. ongoing process mm-hmm. and to um, greater and greater levels. 
right. um, of different levels, different states. And that brings me to um, the part that you mentioned in your bio about uh, what you learned from wisdom keepers and wisdom traditions and how that relates to this. Can Absolutely. you tell us about that? Um, yeah, I, I actually appreciate Pat Ogden. You know, um, if you're familiar with, uh, with Pat Ogden, she talks a lot about um, how this notion of evidence-based leaves out all of the wisdom keepers and the people who have brought knowledge from, um, you know, indigenous and all kinds of different ways of seeing things. You know, our Western culture is, I don't want to insult anyone, but it's lacking. <laughs> it's lacking the way that, that it sees human behavior, because in many other cultures, they don't have the issues with mental illness that we do. And, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with their more of a, a communal tribal based way of, of supporting uh, community, family, those kinds of things. Um, I, you know, there's, there's so much knowledge that people who don't have money and research grants to do this idea of evidence-based that people are hanging their hat on. Evidence-based simply means something happened, something shifted, something changed. It can mean a lot of things. There's lots of, you know, not that I don't support research i do 100 percent, but people have to go into it understanding who's funding it <laughs> who's reading these results does somebody have a stake in the results there's all kinds of things that 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 can can influence the way that things are are read and 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 interpreted and so you know looking to people and cultures and ways of seeing philosophy, you know, reading Foucault, I mean, he's got a lot to say about the mental health system and it's quite brilliant. And uh, it's certainly not uh, evidence-based. And, you know, um, you know, people from indigenous tribe, I mean, there's lots and lots of wisdom keepers that have just as much value and they're they're seen we also i think need to to um separate from these ideas of alternative medicine as being something negative or alternative therapies as being something negative because they're not the status quo or they're not this certain way of seeing things because alternative just means different than diagnostic or medical. It doesn't have anything to do with something negative because all of these alternative theories are brilliant and, and have so much to add which is why, you know, I started way, way back researching and reading about um, different ways of seeing human behavior and philosophy and, and those kinds of things. And, and like I said, indigenous cultures, because I believe, you know, that's kind of the foundation of the model, of my model. And I think if people really sat down and understood the history of the DSM-5 and how the, the, the diagnostic manual came about, they wouldn't be so like, you know, let's hang everything on our, uh, on this approach because it's just some doctors trying to, to understand symptoms of, of, of veterans, you know, it, it wasn't like, and now they call it the, you know, the Bible of psychology. It's like, that's a stretch in my humble opinion. Yeah. And, you know, it, when you talk about alternative, uh, alternative medicine or other ways of seeing things, you know, the, I think the, the tendency to have a diagnosis or the tendency to 
label something and categorize something and say, this is what it is um, and have many people recognize that, right? That's what, that's what a diagnosis does. It, it's kind of like this, right. this mm-hmm. averaging out or this, this commonplace so that anybody trained in that worldview can see that word or that phrase and then, and then associate that with what's happening, right? It's, that's what it's supposed right. to do. It's supposed to be some right. kind of like mm-hmm. communication tool or, or standardized way of seeing things. But in many cultures, there's no need for that because the point is not um, to make a diagnosis or to get paid for billing or to right. have other people to, to communicate to everybody what this is. There's no need for that. It's just simply trying to see what's happening with this person. And right. if you can see and understand what's happening with this person and explain it to the few people in the community or whoever is involved, then there's really no need for a diagnosis in that sense. And I think that's why. So many of these, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the tradition I grew up in, just a kind of an Indian philosophical tradition. Many of these experiences that we would call symptoms and ultimately call a diagnosis are seen as transition states. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, from like one, one, one environment, one lifestyle, one way of seeing things to like another kind of state. And so, but there's no term for it because there's no need there's no fixation on that as a diagnosis but rather the question is where is a and where is c if this is b in, in the you know where is a and where is c and and what's most appropriate there and so uh it, like you said it's another way of seeing things and i think just being in the medical system or medicalizing this kind of almost makes it necessary to have a diagnosis otherwise it's hard right. to even be in the system to some extent, you know, except, well, exactly. I mean, there are some general diagnoses, I suppose, but. Well, and I, I would like to say, I would like to add that, that I understand the, I understand people's need to understand what they're experiencing and maybe helping professionals to, to have that seems like a way that that at least this culture has has been conditioned or just needs to to have, um, which is why I created trauma response syndrome. I was like, okay, syndrome just means a group of symptoms. It doesn't have to mean anything derogatory. It doesn't in my case, and it doesn't have to mean anything diagnostic because it doesn't. It just means a group of symptoms in this case, trauma responses. So that when somebody were to say she has trauma response syndrome, that means, oh, she's been traumatized and she has these experiences. It doesn't mean like, okay, well, she's got, you know, all these diagnoses and all this medication, because I do understand people's need to categorize and, but, but because it's become so medicalized and so, so pathologized that when you hear a certain diagnosis, you're automatically black flagged, red flagged. I mean, you tell somebody you have borderline personality. I've been on both sides. I know what people say about people with those diagnoses. I know because I've heard it and, you know, DID too. Oh, forget it. Then you're really out there and that's not fair. That's not fair. You know, it's like, oh, okay. You're automatically doing all these negative things because you have this diagnosis. Same with, with, uh, dissociative seizures or, or, or trauma, non-epileptic seizure. You would not believe how I'm treated. You would not believe what people, doctors, I guess, think I can't hear them because I have these seizures when I'm sitting right by them and what they say about me. I'm faking it. I'm drug seeking usually. Either I'm like, I don't want any drugs. <laughs> and it's really, really not okay. Yeah. And that's what's happened with the diagnosing. That's what's happened. So well, I'm sorry um, to say that I, unfortunately, I do know what you're talking about, how you're treated, because we see it. A a big part of it is, again, I think it's, it's dissociation on our part, because it's, it's obviously this person is suffering, right? Nobody, nobody wants this to happen. 
Um, I don't even no, know what's happening. <laughs> nobody, yeah, nobody would choose this. Um, it's, it's, there's obviously some suffering here. Um, and frankly, we don't know what to do because so much of the education is about dissociating and making it biological and objective. And if you do the EEG and it shows a non-epileptic pattern, or you know, you, you check the glucose, you check the electrolytes, you do the neurological exam, you, you do all those things. And if we're not identifying a biological cause, then it's almost like our, our armamentarium is gone. You know, it's like, well, what do we do? And I think that's hard to deal with, to kind of come face to face where you're supposed to be an expert and you don't know what to do. And this person's obviously suffering. And there is a human, human contact that goes beyond, you know, professional and patient and all that, where you feel, everybody feels, I mean, we're human beings that this person is suffering. And on top of that, you have that cognitive layer that says, I don't really know what to do. And I think that causes this kind of this behavior where we say things that are inappropriate and do things that are inappropriate. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's why I'm, I'm going to offer to train our EMTs or doctors or whoever for free, whoever is willing to come to a training where I can say, you know, for this, for this amount of time, when, when this happens, the person is so dissociative, they don't know what's going on. I couldn't say at that time, I don't need to go to the ER because I don't, I don't need to go to the ER. I need somebody to sit with me until I'm no longer dissociating. And an EMT doesn't have that kind of time. That's why in a lot of big cities, they have a mental health team that goes out when 911 is called, when it's these certain kinds of of things and it's really, really successful, really successful. And, you know, um, I hope that that's because non-epileptic seizures are not fake. They're just not medical. They're, they're dissociative. They're trauma-based. I lose consciousness. I shake. I look like I'm having a, I am having a seizure. That's how much trauma is stored in the body. I mean, it's really, really fascinating when it's not happening to you, <laughs> you know, um, there are also, but to kind of circle back around, I do not have any judgment or, um, negative thing to say about attention seeking behaviors. I think, like I said, we need to normalize all attention-seeking behaviors as what, what does this person need? Obviously they need some attention. What is it? Um, and because that's a normal, that's an understandable trauma response from somebody who did not get what they needed as a kid. They don't know how to get their needs met in any other ways, but these behaviors. And sometimes people do things that aren't actually happening. I can say that because I've had these experiences. I know I've worked with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, and I also understand trauma. So do those people need to be called names and, and, and said, you know, they're, they're bad people because they're maybe doing something that that's not really happening for attention, or do they need to be supported even more? Yeah. Because Sometimes people do go to the ER because they need some attention. Yeah. And I have no problem saying that because yeah. why wouldn't they? Yeah. They don't have they don't have any family or anything else. Right. Yeah. But the doctors don't really have space for that. It's like, how yeah. do they deal with that? It's like right. what the training, the time, yeah. no, you know, right. the, just the framework, the approach, just on so many levels. Um, right. We do see, we see all kinds of pain in the ER, you yeah. know, whether it's uh, emotional, existential, physical, every kind of pain, and they're all connected somehow. And, and, mm -hmm. but we're only trained in, right. in certain aspects and, and therein lies one of the problems. Um, and yet I also see that there are people who benefit, of course, from receiving a diagnosis and, and right. almost, oh, of course. It almost it, that understanding that, okay, there is. X happening helps to some extent. And sometimes medications can help, 
to Absolutely. especially when harmful behavior, you know, um, others self-harm is involved. And so I do see this battle happening over diagnosis, you know, to should we be diagnosing these or should we be not? Should we be finding other ways like seeing them as trauma responses? Maybe that itself can be a diagnosis, trauma response. So um, how do we navigate this, this, this challenge of um, diagnosis, even unfortunately in our society, is a way of actually validating that, yes, we see you and something is happening. You know, I don't think we should need that. It would be nice if we could see and identify that this person is suffering even with that, without a diagnosis, but, you know, even in, even in um, not even mental illness, but even with physical symptoms, right? When somebody comes to the ER with Absolutely. abdominal pain or chest pain, and then when we, let's say we do the evaluation of the ER and we, we feel that it's safe for the person to go home and we say, well, your diagnosis is chest pain which is basically an experience that they had coming in. It's, it's not a biological explanation. And sometimes that can be, it can feel invalidating as if, you know, my symptoms aren't real, which of course is not the case. And I take great pains to explain that we're just saying from the biological perspective, you know, we're not seeing this, this, and this, but we understand the pain is the experience is real. And, and here's what we, have, what we have to do to follow up. So what do you say about that? The two sides of diagnosis right. there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, you're, you're making a good point because what I have noticed is what's been happening is there's, there is a, a, a momentum building behind the anti-psychiatry movement. There's momentum building, uh, the anti-medication, the, this prescribed harm, the psychiatric harm movement, and they're very from the people that I am familiar with and who I'm talking about me included, I've been very harmed by, by, by polypharm and all kinds of stuff. Um, they are very, uh, black. There's so much black and white thinking. Um, it's either, you know, no way should anyone ever be on a medication or any of those things. And then there's the people who are on the other side that are, you take my medications and that's unethical and all these kinds of things. And they're at, they're at odds. And, um, I always see the gray. I would never say that there, there isn't a time and a place for medication. Um, I've worked with many people and, um, you know, they, my perspective is people need to be informed. They need to be given all the information that is out there and the doctors and psychiatrists and people need to understand the severity and of withdrawals. Um, they're told to taper in four, you know, four weeks, what they've been on for 10 years. And that, that is very, very dangerous. I've yet to meet many many prescribers that understand the dangers of, of medication withdrawal. That is not to say that nobody should have access to medication ever. I mean, that's ridiculous. There's a time and a place for Western medicine. I want people to have an option, an equal option, meaning they make the decision. If you feel comfortable being diagnosed with a mental, a mental illness that makes you feel safer for your experiences. Nobody's going to take your diagnosing away that that's your right. And there's many, many people that will work with you from that perspective and give you medication and anything that you, that's, that's, that's a person's right from my perspective. But at the same time, we, the millions of us that, that do not want to identify as mentally ill when I, I'm not mentally ill. Um, trauma does not make somebody mental ill, mentally ill. Um, and there's millions of people that are, are no longer okay with treatment as usual. And we deserve an option to be seen 
as somebody who's having an understandable reaction to what they're experiencing without it being pathologized. That's where I come in. That's where I, that's where my, my place is. That doesn't mean I'm anti anything. I'm pro informed consent. Every, every state needs laws about informed consent and psychiatric medications or any medication. And, um, you know, if people don't want to go into the mental health system and they want to see people who are trained and ethical and all those things without going in the mental health system, they deserve access to that. In my opinion, that, that everybody deserves a seat at the table. Yeah. Not one person, you know, now you don't get your, you know, your medications or your diagnosis. That's not it at all. For me, I know that there is that, but that's not what I'm, what I'm saying in, in any way. So Kimberly, the show is called Healing is Possible. When you hear this phrase, healing is possible, uh -huh. what comes to mind? That... It doesn't matter what you've been through. If you have the insights and understanding of your experiences, that you can learn to get your needs met in ways that are more life-serving and that you can and learn about your, your trauma responses and your experiences and you can heal. Anyone can potentially heal from anything. Um, and I think that people just aren't getting access to the right kind of treatment, that that's the only thing that's keeping people from actually recovering. The stories shared here are the experiences of the speakers. They're not intended as medical advice. Join our network or simply share your story at healthrevolution.org. Healing is possible.